a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, a very special one, guys. We have Danuta Pfeiffer here. Now, uh, she was a national radio broadcasting journalist, uh, columnist, and uh, TV show host for over 35 years. She's authored over four books. Uh, one of them, uh, Chiseled, uh, is about her experience with Pat Robinson at the 700 Club. We also go into her uh, first book of her three-book series called Libertas, and uh, it is a literary masterpiece. It's about um, the Oregon Trail, but I'm going to let her explain it because it's even better than I ever could. So um, all the ways to find her, of course, guys, will be located down in the show notes. Make sure that you check her out. She has a fascinating story. She owns a winery now. Go check her winery out. It's linked down there. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, so all the ways, if you want to expand your experience with us here on the show, will be located down there as well. You can just go to expandingrealitypodcast.com, and that's where links to merchandise, Rockfin for premium content. Uh, our premium content, Expanded Reality, is also on our website. Make sure you go check out the, all the bonus stuff and become a member. It's, it's incredible, guys. It's a lot of fun. So um, without any further ado, let's get to this incredible conversation. I'm telling you, she is fascinating, and y'all are going to love this. Uh, so let's get to it here with Danuta Pfeiffer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming to the show, it is uh, Danuta Pfeiffer. It is so nice to meet you finally. This has been an interesting ride to get together. You, of course, are a friend of Grace's, and like we were talking about earlier, any friend of Grace's is family of ours. So uh, we welcome you to the show, Danuta. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, So before we get going here, do you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself? I've been a journalist, uh, professional journalist in radio and broadcasting all my life, graduated from the University of Colorado, and I was a... um, I was, uh, I've been a newspaper columnist and a, a, a TV host, uh, a radio show host, um, a swim instructor, a ski instructor. Uh, I've had a, a varied career in athletics and, and also in writing and journalism. Um, one of my detours was as the uh, co-host to Pat Robertson during his tenure on the 700 Club uh, when he was running for president, um, I soon learned my lesson and ran from that and became, went back to my progressive roots. Um, I was born in England, lived in Canada, emigrated to Michigan when I was a little girl. And when we were little, we lived in a tent in northern Michigan while my father was building our cabin. So I lived a very Huckleberry Finn life. Um, Dad would go out and shoot a deer with a bow and arrow. And when he didn't have the heart to do that, uh, we'd eat roadkill. But um, for the most part, for the most part, um, put myself through college and uh, and did a 2000 mile bicycle ride to clear my head from my time at the 700 club, found myself, moved to Oregon, met the love of my life. And in 11 days, he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes, we started a winery together. And that was 27 years ago. So uh, here I am writing back to the thing that I love to do the most. And, um, uh, I'm I'm on to the second book in my trilogy. So uh, it's been a long, wonderful ride to go from a television evangelist to a winemaker. <laughs> I would say so. You turned your experience into wine. Nice job. Yes, I did. Very good. Uh, so Pfeiffer Winery is the name. Pfeiffer Winery and Vineyards is the name, of course, in Junction City, Oregon. If you guys are out that way or planning to go, uh, the wine is excellent. You guys uh, actually were the featured Pinot at a presidential dinner. Is that right? Yes, uh, President Obama, um, just before his inauguration, uh, he 
some of his people brought a bottle of our Pinot Noir to his private inaugural dinner in the Blair House the, the night before his inauguration. So that was quite an honor. That is an honor and uh, some street cred for sure. So nice mm-hmm. job. Nice job, Danita. Thank you. I, so one of the interesting parts, too, is your first book. So uh, Water Safe Your Baby in One Week. And this goes back to your swimming. So what made you so passionate about uh, infant survival and so much so that you wanted to put it in a book? I'm sure we're all passionate about that. But well, I was uh, I was putting myself through school, uh, through college. And during the summertime, I was a swim instructor and um, and one at a, at a resort. And one day a mother had come to me and said, can you teach my baby to swim? We just put in a swimming pool. And I said, well, the Red Cross didn't offer swimming instructions for babies or infants. And so I began to practice, if you will, uh, with babies. And I said, if you could bring to the, you know, to the pool, a few other mothers and babies to see if there's an interest, I would be willing to uh, work with you. So before you knew it, I had 25 babies. I mean, they were all under a year old. And um, uh, over the summer, I developed this technique of having an infant flip over onto his back and float independently uh, for hours if necessary. So if a child fell in the water, um, the baby isn't going to learn how to do the American crawl. The baby is going to immediately flip over to his back and wait until help arrives. And uh, I was able to have a technique that could accomplish that in about six days. That's fascinating. That's incredible. Nice job. Uh, well, well, I just I, I really based it on the Pavlovian method. If you give if you give a signal uh, often enough uh, to to um, anybody really. Uh, with Pavlov, it was ringing a bell just before dinner time, and the dogs would salivate. Uh, with a with a with a baby, it was you give a, a little jerk just before the baby goes into the water, and he knows to hold his breath. And you give another little jerk to an arm, and it, he knows to flip over. And pretty soon, you don't have to give any little jerks; it's automatic. That's incredible. Uh, we, so, so I like this approach too. We have uh, just, we had a, a, a dog that just went nuts barking wise and we don't, um, we're not physically abusive to any of our animals, but we did get this suggestion to use a shock collar. And so what we did was what I came up with the idea to do, we, uh, it's a bark collar. So what it does, I set it on the lowest setting possible. And then whenever the dog would start barking, like incessantly, it was, a, it was very problematic and we tried everything. Uh, this is the last resort, but it worked. And so we, uh, turned it all the way down. It, he barked one time. It shocked me. He made this crazy noise like, oh God, what was that? Uh, after two or three more times, he stopped barking. And then he associated that feeling with that collar. Now, all I had to do was put it on one time with the batteries in it. From then on, I took the batteries out and the fact that it was on, he remembered that that could happen, And but it never had batteries in it. So it was just these certain moments, but you, mm-hmm. you do this and this psychology works with anyone. And yeah, this response, reaction, timed yeah. thing, and it initiates a, little, a response. Just, it's a little trigger, a, yeah. a little trigger to that, to that behavior. A hundred percent. That yeah, is so now today, uh, after, after doing that for the summer, um, uh, I, I started a swim school for infants so that um, because and I was teaching in in backyard pools. So uh, I, because every, because when you do this with it, with a baby, it's really important to keep everything very quiet. You don't want a ton of kids, a ton of noise. You want focus. You want you want everything to be calm. So there's no there is no sense of um of despair or no sense of excitement. You want to keep everything very calm. And so I was doing it in, in people's own. I would go to their home and teach in their backyard, in their backyard swimming pool. Uh, eventually people started asking me for the book. Well, I didn't have one. Um, but over a period of time, I uh, had pictures taken and put the book together. And it was the first book that the American Red Cross certified for infant survival water techniques. And that was over 40 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. So now anywhere you go, you're going to find water baby classes. And uh, they're taking they're taking that technique that I used and, and developed all those years ago. 
It's amazing your story because you just have a series of accomplishments that are just incredible. And they're not necessarily connected, but they're all very, very connected. And so it's interesting the the path of success and the change that you've created behind you as you've as you've, as you've moved through your own life. So I I am absolutely curious about how you met Pat Robinson. <laughs> well, um, I didn't really officially meet him. I was I was working in San Diego. I was always a seeker. I was always looking for that spiritual connection. In fact, in college, I I minored minored in philosophy. I, I wanted to know the purpose, the meaning, the the route, the path, the way. Uh, so. Um, while I was in San Diego, I was the co-host for uh, Sam San Diego, which was a morning show on CBS. And um, I had become a born again Christian. Um, and I was the kind of born again Christian. I was saved over a margarita and I would have Bible studies with our pastor and margaritas in the downtown um, uh, Latino section of town. And, you know, it was it was it was a very progressive kind of way of being me. Um, so somebody had sent my videotape of one of my shows to the Christian Broadcasting Network. And I was contacted uh, by CBN and asked if I would be interested in starting the the um, news bureau in Jerusalem and be the news bureau chief for their new Jerusalem bureau. And my first job would be to interview the Pope. Well, what journalist in their white mind would not want to do that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, of course, I gave up my I had a I was the anchor afternoon anchor radio person on, uh, for KFMB. I was also their morning talk show host, gave it up. I was also a columnist. I I, I gave it up, drove across country with my um, with my bags all packed, ready to go to Jerusalem. But uh, when I got there, I was there three days early and I was going to get my ticket on Monday and I was there on Wednesday. And uh, they said, well, listen, our co-host has left. They didn't tell me at the time that she had a nervous breakdown, but she was not there. And they asked me if I would mind filling in with Pat Robertson and Ben Kinchlow uh, to co-host the 700 Club while they're looking for a new host. And then I could get my ticket on Monday. So I did the three days I sat. Uh, that was the first time I met them was when I got up there and I sat on the set. And, um, you know, I can read a teleprompter like anybody else. I can ad lib, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. You're great. Uh, so I was I was fine with it. Yeah. Um, it didn't seem out of step for me. I didn't, it wasn't, there weren't any bizarre moments that, that caught me off guard or gave me a red flag uh, that, you know, this isn't something I wanted to get into, but anyway, it was temporary weekend comes Monday comes. I go into the human resources department to pick up my ticket to Jerusalem because my bags are still packed. And all on on all the little booths and cubicles and on doors and bulletin boards is a white piece of paper. It simply says, welcome Danuta as the new co-host of the 700 Club. (laughs) And so I became a television evangelist by default. Wow. Um, By accident, really. And when I expressed some surprise, their answer was, it's God's will. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah. it's God's will then. But I didn't know that God worked like that. And I didn't, you know, I was new to, I was new to all of this uh, Christianity. I thought, you know, you just accept Jesus as your savior and, you know, all's good. He's a good guy. I like Jesus. You like Jesus. You know, I didn't realize uh, until over the five years I was there, things became more and more politicized, more and more conservative, and more and more, for me, dangerous. Um, there were so many new rules, like I couldn't have wine. I couldn't drink wine in my house. Remember, I became yeah. a winemaker later. Yeah. But it was for me, it was, uh, I, I just couldn't understand that. Things like, didn't Jesus, wasn't that his first miracle? 
water to wine? And the answer when I asked that question was, it could have been grape juice. What? So there were other problems that, that started cropping up, you know, um, dancing was sort of frowned on. Um, there was a lot of uh, political uh, agendas underneath everything we were doing. And then when Pat finally decided to uh, run for president in the um, against George Bush, uh, things got really strange. And there were some there were some policies that started coming in that really didn't feel right. And I, you know, there were statements that Pat would make, like um, all women who get divorced uh, go on to become witches and lesbians. And I, I, you know, I I really snapped my head. I said, Pat, you're talking about my mother. Yeah. You know, she left an abusive relationship and and you're you know and there are lots of women who yeah i mean no what (laughs) so i mean it was very hard to um navigate these murky waters and these statements that kept coming up so i started asking a lot of questions on the air and quite frankly to pat's credit he brought them on he liked them he wanted to explain he wanted to answer them so i became kind of um a sounding board. Uh, I, I became the yeah, but person on the set and it, and it worked for a while, but uh, I, I really, when I left, I was absolutely uh, hollowed out. Um, and I, I couldn't pray anymore. I couldn't see anymore. I couldn't think anymore. Everybody kept asking me, you know, where do you worship now? Uh, uh, so are you still a Christian? And, uh, you know, I would meet people walking on the beach. Um, no, I couldn't go anywhere, not into an airport or a restaurant anywhere because the, the show was shown on every continent. Um, uh, millions and millions and millions of people followed this program. And um, for a time, the Washington Post called me the most visible woman in modern Christianity. And I was a heavy, that was a heavy burden to carry because I still hadn't learned the words to amazing grace yet. And, and already I was being asked spiritual questions. I was going to seminars where I was the featured speaker and they want, you know, people would line up uh, wanting prayers and healing from me. And, um, and I would say, you know, Jesus is the one you go to, not somebody on television. Well, the more I said, not me, the more they loved me, the more they wanted more of me. And, and the more I, I said, no, the more they wanted more. It was, it was interesting. So I, I had people coming up asking me to pray for their husbands, pray for their cancer, pray, pray for all their troubles. Um, and, um, it was, a it was very demanding and, um, and exhausting and, and all this conflict inside of me, you know, what have we set up here? What, what, why are people looking at television personalities for uh, when their their spirit, their supposedly their spiritual center should have been Jesus, uh, not Danuta, not Pat, not Ben, not not anybody on television. They shouldn't be doing that. Sending money and and um, it was. It was uh, it, it had it felt too much like a cult. And I felt like I had become part of it. <sighs> well, and it's somewhat paradoxical because these people look to you as a figure because you're connected. You're the one giving them the information and the address to send the money to. And to what you said about Pat, uh, kind of um, going off on that uh, thought that he had about divorced women do you do you think that there's anything too that there's sort of a sensationalism that that occurs like an entropy in quality of programming that occurs with something like that to where you inevitably yes. just default into this crazy stuff because you have to to keep you know up in the game as, as it were it just degenerated um the 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 program 
I thought in the beginning, they called it journalism with a different spirit. And I thought that was a, a nice way to, you know, to, to look at the world and let's let's talk about peace. Let's talk about um, kindness. Let's talk about mercy. Let's let's talk about uh, the poor. Let's let's uh, reach into our hearts and see if we can make the world better. I had no idea that 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 was in the that wasn't the focus. What the focus was, was look what CBN is doing and send us more money for it. And in the meantime, Pat was buying diamond mines in Africa. He, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he would um, associate with people who would give him more power, more press, more, um, more ego. I I hate to say that um, because, because there is a part of Pat that I want to make clear that I really think that for a long time, he believed very much. So he believed that he was doing good. I think he really believes in Jesus and in, and in his mission. But I think, I think it's been corrupted by power and money. And I just couldn't be part of it anymore. Uh, well, good on you for getting out. But that power and money, that's what corrupts the ideas and that, and allows someone to give someone themselves the permission to do the mental gymnastics it takes to fit whatever they want into the paradigm that they are advertising under. And it's an interesting thing that they uh, exploit this. And this goes back to what I was saying about uh, you being a public figure, because people can't a lot of people, uh, the ones that tune in to CBN, are the ones that are that want a figurehead. They want somebody to lean on, someone that can give them the answers because their Jesus doesn't necessarily talk to them, but they talk through you. So there's a there's a quality about you. You know, it's like bishops and popes and all that stuff. Uh, you know, but with people like evangelicals, and we know the ones I'm talking about, the not good ones, uh, if there is one, then um, it, it seems like that they require that sort of attention. And so they kind of condition the people to treat everyone in the industry that way, because they that's what they demand. And so that is definitely ego, and it does get corrupted along the way. And again, then they get those mental gymnastics. So um, what do you think is, do you think that that's ever going to change, that evangelical Christianity in that way, in that exploitive way, uh, will ever come to an end? Well, I think I think the um, the conservative evangelical today is being exploited mm. uh, politically. And we've seen that in the previous administration, how um, how the, the evangelicals were used as a political tool. And I don't even think they realized it. Um, uh, uh, when Trump courted Pat Robertson and the conservatives, um, it was two big egos coming together and, uh, with, with those two guys and, and, uh, you know, there are followers, there are sheep. Jesus said, you know, my people are sheep and, and they're always looking for Kings. They're looking, they're looking for answers and they don't, um, we've, uh, evangelical Christianity, especially television, has made celebrities out of these people, and they are presumed to know all the answers, and they've taught people not to think for themselves. And so if you don't have to think, then just ask somebody else. Ask your Uncle Milton or ask Pat Robertson, or but don't don't work it out yourself. Um, and and I think that's a, I think that's very dangerous. Um, we have we have taught a whole generation to look to um, politicians and to your and and to your religious leaders, especially the ones that are are, are in it for graft um, or, or for personal growth, growth uh, and not the goodness of others. Um, they're they've been taught. Just listen to me because. Uh, you're not capable of thinking these things through for yourself. And especially when it comes to Christianity, because you're supposed to have this personal relationship with a God and that personal relationship is supposed to be talking to you. Well, that wasn't working quite that way. And um, uh, that's what they say, but, but you have to go to the celebrities on TV for your real answers. 
Yes, yes. This is the thing. It's another ideology, and people feel warm and fuzzy about this particular one instead of Justin Bieber, uh, because there's a god attached to it. You know, there's an altruistic, you know, ideal attached to it, even if it's not executed that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, something you said earlier was very interesting to me. So, I'd like to come back to it. So, you said that you didn't get any red flags whenever you first showed up there, and you ended up there five years. Now, um, I have a thought on this. I just wanted to see what you thought about it. So intuition is what we're talking about in discernment whenever you walk into situations. Now, sometimes you get that right away. Do you think that you didn't get it right away, even though it was glaring you in the face now that you look back at it, because you were meant to go through that experience, so therefore it didn't throw a flag at you to make you turn around and run, but it let you go into something knowing that it was going to be very challenging, but also more immensely growth-oriented for you? Ooh, I don't think I went in it for my mental growth. I went in it from for my spiritual growth. I um, I found I I was led to believe that I was there because the Lord put me there, and so I had a role to play. And until I felt that the Lord didn't want me there, I was going to stick it out. That I was there for a reason, and they kept telling me that. No. And I tried quitting several times before. And uh, one time I was on the beach in, in Florida taking a break and I was laying in the sand when one of the counselors from CBN ended up standing there next to my next to my uh, beach towel and I and wanted to talk me out of quitting because the Lord wants you there. And so. I didn't feel I was um, spiritually um, uh, sophisticated enough to say, no, that's not what the Lord wants. I mean, who was I to know what the Lord wants? I was just kind of trying to follow my the best path. Um, eventually, it did catch up with me. Uh, and will you expand on that it, ca- that it caught up with you? Um, I was, uh, I, I didn't, I was very uncomfortable. I was feeling more and more uncomfortable. Um, and then along comes Pat on running for president. He couldn't be on the show anymore because of the fairness doctrine, because if he has all this exposure, he was going to have to give his opponent exposure, even if it was a Christian show, he didn't want George Bush on his show. Right. So Pat had to step away and he put his son in place of his young son uh, came and sort of took the mantle. Well, his son wasn't very strong in uh, television delivery, television interviews. He, he really hadn't really done much of this before. And so there was a shuffling of duties and, um, and I was, uh, I was going to my car. I was going towards my car in the parking lot and the executive producer met me in the parking lot and said, can we talk? And I said, sure. And he, we go into the car and he said, um, well, you're off the show. And I said, uh, well, real, okay, how long? And he said, well, permanently. And I said, why? And he said, because, because Pat's son is going to take over the chair. And, and um, I said, yes, but just three days ago, there was somebody on the beach with me telling me that I was supposed to stay. Because God said I was supposed to stay. Now you're saying God says I'm supposed to go. Which is it? The God in the parking lot or the God on the beach? Which one is talking to me? And oh, I was really confused. I mean, I was, I, I just, I, I was um, suddenly faced with the fact that God wasn't in any of that. I mean, was I supposed to choose? Which God I was supposed to be listening to? I, I mean, I was very confused. So, um, Pat, ha, I, I wanted to talk with him. I, you know, I wanted to say goodbye or, you know, what's going on or uh, something. So, I, 
and he, he kept avoiding me. Uh, so finally I found, I got him in his office. We were in his office and he told me that the real reason that I wasn't on the show anymore was because the husband that I married had been married before. Now I had been married to this man for five years. Everybody, I mean, I'd been married and I, and I looked at Pat and I said, what? He goes, well, yeah, your husband has been, had been divorced. And, you know, we don't really look, look at that very kindly. And it's not a good, it's not a good look to have my co-hostess with a man she's married who has been married before. I said, but, I've been married to him for the last five years. What? It, nothing made sense. Nothing was making sense. Nothing was making sense. So um, I threw Christianity out. I, I threw, I gutted a, an entire belief system in order to, um, in order to breathe again and in order to find a true spiritual center that I can live with. The Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> I, well, how long did it take you to heal from that religious trauma? About two years. Um, I, I took a 5,000 mile bicycle, a uh, 2,000 mile bicycle ride uh, from Canada to Mexico with a girlfriend. Uh, the two of us had been riding bikes for some time together. And so uh, we had the opportunity to, to ride along the Pacific coast um, from British Columbia to Mexico. So we had high tea in, uh, in Canada and ended up with a margarita in, uh, in Tijuana. And um, that 2000 mile bicycle ride where we're carrying our own equipment, our own tents and sleeping bags and cooking over campfires and um, learning how to climb a mountain and learning how the the other side of that mountain was a sweet slope. So it was worth the challenge and the sweat going up because you knew there was going to be a reward coming down. I learned how to steer a straight line, straight and narrow. When you're, when you're facing traffic, uh, you can't waver. If there's a log truck behind you, you've got to, you've got to be, you've got your, your path has to be direct and straight. You got to have the right equipment. You can't ride a ride a crappy little bicycle. You've got to have the right kind of seat. You got to have the right kind of training. You've got to know that you've got the right tools for whatever job you're going to do with your life. Um, it taught me so many things about about endurance and sustenance and things that were important. Most of all, it connected me back to nature, and I found great joy and great peace uh, in the mountains, in the forests, um, by rivers, uh, camping along the ocean cliffs. Um, I really, I, I realized that my expanded reality was the, was the cathedral of nature, not a building of man. So I didn't have to go into a church. I didn't have to go into a building that some human being built in order to talk to the creator. It was right there. It was right. It's outside. It's not inside. It's out there. So you just have to breathe and listen to listen for a few minutes and you'll it, it'll it'll it's right there. And um, man, I, uh, I I loved that expansiveness and I came home healed. I was, I was healed. It's the ultimate way to transmute something. Cause you took something that was so damaging and, but that you learned a tremendous amount from, and that it's very valuable in your life to this day, of course. And I know I could go ahead and speak for you saying that you don't regret any of it, that you're grateful for all of it because it led you to a greater, grander version of you. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, but you, you did this in a way that was adventurous. So that was exciting and dangerous, but it's something unlike that anything you've ever done, but also it took a lot of planning and work. So you invested emotional, physical, mental energy into something for a long time to then spend a long time. How long did that ride take you? Uh, 45 days. Really? You Living on the road 45 for 45 days. days. Mm hmm. It seems pretty fast to me. I don't know why. <laughs> like you guys were cooking. Well, I, we were riding. I mean, I'm, I'm, 
I don't tootle when I ride, <laughs> you know, you, you ride 50, 60, 70 miles a day. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't, I was, my bicycle doesn't have a basket on it. Right. You know, it was, <laughs> I had panniers. <laughs> we had to, you know, we were, we were, we were sure we, we had a, we had a goal every day to ride to the next campsite. And we followed a book called Ride the Pacific Coast. So there were these campsites that we would have to make each day, which was very helpful to follow this, this book. It's amazing and such a cool adventure and what a great story. And of course, you learned all that along the way. And then getting out and the, the beauty that you saw out in nature all around, that's what it was there in front of you the whole time. You know, this is what's great there. about this. Yeah, yeah. But had you taken any other path, you wouldn't be where you are and like know the things that you know. So it's all worth it. It's all valuable. I love this. So uh, let's talk about why uh, somebody would call your book Libertas a literary masterpiece. <laughs> Well, that took my breath away. I, I must admit, when somebody called my book a literary masterpiece, I, I thought, um, oh, gee, was that hyperbole? Um, and then and then it started winning awards. Um, and then it got to be the uh, runner up to the best book of the year for the historical fiction company. And and then I started getting more awards, gold medals. And, and I thought, you know, this, this is a good book. I, I went back and read it myself and I thought, my God, what, um, what a journey my characters took. And, and I was so, um, to me, they are, uh, Horace and Frederica are so alive that they do come, uh, they burst off the page and, and I can't think of them as being anything but um, real characters, because now when I'm writing the second book in the trilogy, I just have all I have to do is sit down and they talk to me and the characters are so well developed that that they tell me what they're going to do next. Um, so the, so these these two people have been through so much and um, going not, not only just escaping from slavery but looking for freedom, libertas, and finding it in, in 19th century America, uh, going over the, the Erie Canal when it's still, when their barges are still pulled by, pulled by uh, horses along the canal to pull the barges through, um, going to Buffalo, New York. Very few people know that in Buffalo, New York, there was a tsunami in 1844 uh, at midnight, the <laughs> Lake Erie had actually, it's called a sayish. And even the Native Americans called it the cat because the lake was so unpredictable because it's shallow and narrow. And so they always had great respect for the cat, which they called Erie, which was translated to Erie. And so Lake Erie has had this uh, very, um, a uh, crazy natural thing that happens sometimes. And so Buffalo, New York is right at the northern part of it. And then Lake Erie is down here like this. So what happened one night, the wind came in from the north and blew hard real for three days. And the wind shoved the water to the south. Oh. That night when the wind really had picked up, nobody saw it. Nobody saw these long beachheads. And um, and then, unfortunately, in a very strange turn of events, the wind shifted direction and came directly from the south. And so all this water was built up to the back end. And now like a thousand locomotives, it is pushed to the north. And so these huge waves are coming into Buffalo while people are still sleeping in their beds at midnight. And what happens in a sayish, a sayish happens on, um, uh, on lakes, large bodies of water that are hemmed in everywhere. So let's pretend you're in a bathtub and you start jostling the water in the bathtub. Where does the water go? It smashes to the side and then comes back together and then goes up. And so these collisions, these oscillating collisions, huge waves, 
just forming up in the middle of the lake, huge and crashing together and then rolling into Buffalo. They picked up these waves, picked up huge steamships that were out in the lake and were putting them in the center of Buffalo and um, and took out a third of the city in the middle of the night. That is fascinating. I did not know that at all. That's yeah, I didn't either, but that's what research will do for you in a good yeah. historical fiction. <laughs> oh, I like no. uh, I like fun facts like that, and that's fascinating. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so, what inspired you to write uh, Libertas to begin with? Well, I guess it starts with the history of Oregon, because they're they're my my uh, Horace and Frederica are have joined the Oregon Trail, and. Uh, there's a there's so many things that happened on the Oregon Trail that very few people understood or un, or think about. I was absolutely engrossed in in the the trials and tribulations of of going across country in a covered wagon. It's unbelievable what people had to endure. So I to backtrack a little bit, they're going to Oregon. And Oregon at the time, unbeknownst to my escaped slaves. Oregon is the only black exclusion state in the country. It actually had become a state with that in its charter. In, and in 1927, Oregon had more Ku Klux Klan members in the state than any other state in the union. It's hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it, it stems from this, um, this charter uh, that was initiated in 1859 when Oregon first became a state. And I was, I, I was, a, I live in Oregon. So it was um, heartbreaking to me to realize that, you know, this, this was Oregon's past history. So I started digging and that digging kind of set me on a track to say, what were the early pioneers here? How did they get here? Did they know there was a black exclusion law? What if they were black? What, what would happen then? And then were there any black pioneers on the Oregon Trail? And what if they had come from, what if they had gone through the underground and instead of going to Canada, they end up on the Oregon Trail? What, what, what was waiting for them after enduring the most incredible hardships uh, unbelievable problems on the Oregon Trail and to go for five or six months, hungry, thirsty, barefoot, walking for 2000 miles. It's an it's a 2000 mile long graveyard is what the Oregon Trail was. Every 80 yards was a grave. They would bury their dead in the road of the trail so that other wagons would go over the grave and pound it down so the wolves wouldn't dig them up. Jesus. There were there were um, mass graves at a lot of campsites, uh, 50, 60 people all buried at the same time because of cholera. Um, they had to fight typhoid and dysentery and broken axles and dead oxen and and um, it just goes on and on. It, uh, Thirsty, hungry, the dust. Uh, they had to put sheet, um, sheets over the oxen's face because the dust was so thick. Um, and there's parts of a desert that they had to go through. Everybody thinks that the desert is like a flat, hard ground. Well, no, not near, not when you're near Salt Lake City because the, the Great Salt Lake actually is muddy. And, and so it's a mud crust. And in some places, the oxen were up to their shoulders in mud, trying to pull the wagons across, just dragging them through mud until finally they couldn't go any further. I mean, the heat, the, the, there, were, there, were, there were crickets about four inches long, big biting black crickets that would swarm over huge swaths of, of land. They couldn't camp there. Or the campsites were so foul because 500 other travelers had been there before you and they aren't using latrines and it's a water hole. And so over and over and over, now you've got a, a fouled water hole 
people are pissing and pooping everywhere. You've got dead cattle that are half dead sitting in the water you're supposed to be cooking, drinking and cleaning with. So no wonder they had dysentery and cholera. So they started wearing face masks. They actually put their shawls over their face and they tried to outrun outrun the diseases. So sometimes they even wouldn't stop at a campsite because there was too much death around. Or they would camp at night thinking they were safe, wake up in the morning and they're camping on a grave with an arm sticking up where the wolves are pulling on the dead and 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 they have to shuffle on very quickly. And um, there's how these people did, most of them had seven and eight children and they walked the entire way. Now, th- these kinds of facts from an or from, you know, we, we think of these great Westerns where everybody has a clean white shirt and a nice handkerchief and, you know, <laughs> wagons hoe. <laughs> it, it was so hard. And um, it was it, it was so very, very hard. And and women are giving birth. Um, babies are dying, people are dying, or you would get up in the morning feeling just fine, but by noon you're dead because uh, dysentery hit you so fast and so hard, you'd be dead by noon. We'd have to bury you because the wagon train isn't waiting. They don't wait for you to mourn. So sometimes when people were in the process of dying, they had they, they dug that person's grave and the, and the dying person is laying by the grave and they would have somebody waiting for the person to die so that they could, because the wagon trains left so that they, after they died, they just put them in the grave and dig and then catch up to the wagon train. Um, there was just no time for emotion, no time to um, grieve, um, no time to uh, worry about the past, even the recent past of that, high noon, you had to keep going because if you didn't make it by the fall, when the rains and the snow start, you wouldn't make it at all. And you were out of money. You were out of clothes. You were out of shoes. You were out. Your oxen have died. If you can't make it in four or five months, you've lost your travel window and it's over. This is fascinating. I, I knew none of this stuff. It's Oregon Trail's that that old game on your computer that you used to play. You know, nobody yeah. nobody thinks you know about the real implications of the actual history of it. Well, the, the the a lot of the people died not not from disease, which of course was a terrible thing, but accident self inflicted accidents. Um, a lot of men died because they didn't know how to use a gun. They were told to bring a gun. Um, but they were bankers and clerks and farmers, and uh, they they weren't they weren't gunslingers. They didn't know how to use a gun, so they would put a loaded flintlock gun in the wagon, barrel side out. So at night, when they're unloading the wagon, they grabbed the gun by the barrel, which is facing them, and pull to pull the gun out, uh. and the, the hair trigger would go off and they would shoot themselves in the stomach. Uh, That happened a lot. Um, A lot of children died by falling under the wheels of the wagons. Um, Because if children are sitting in the the bucket, um, the wheels are iron clad, four inch wide. I mean, they're wide. And and that wood is surrounded by iron and at night, they would soak the wheels in the creek so that the wood would expand and then the iron would clench over the wood so that they would stay hard and fast. These are heavy, heavy wheels. And so the children would f- sometimes fall under one of those wheels. Um, uh, that happened a lot. Um, and, and drownings. Crossing rivers, they crossed so many countless rivers, countless rivers and streams and tributaries. Um, and there was quicksand. And so crossing rivers was a, was an enormous challenge. And so many people drowned just crossing a river. Uh, and, uh, and of course the oxen would drown and, and they would try to seal the boxes of the covered wagon up with tar so that it could act like a 
its own little float. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But try to go down the Columbia River, the great Columbia River with a covered wagon on a wooden raft. Uh, that's a hell of a trip. God, it's insane. And so, yeah. So, so I was thinking, how do my characters, how in the hell did they make it? They, how did they get there? And now that they're here, how did they live? Because the black exclusion law uh, states that white, that anybody in the Oregon territory could encourage a black, not just a black, but uh, if you were mulatto, Chinese uh, or Native American, encourage them to leave by thrashing them no more than 20 lashes every six months. What? When that wasn't enforced for a year, they took that part out and they just said, just encourage them to leave without actually talking about whipping them. Um, so my in, in book in in my trilogy, I am going to explore the outcome of this long, hard trip to Oregon and what happens now. Fascinating. Uh, were you able to, in your research, find any uh, black slaves seeking asylum that were found on the Oregon Trail or any stories of any that had made it that way? There are a lot of black cowboys. They were, I mean, there were, I mean, we, we don't think of cow when you, you know, your image of a cowboy from Westerns very seldom incorporates a, a black cowboy, but there were many. And, um, but I didn't find, I didn't, there were some blacks that came up. There were about 50 to a hundred black pioneers. And some of them were slaves of the, of the immigrants. So they were brought along with them. I mean, when they came to Oregon, um, they were supposed to set them free because Oregon was also anti-slavery, but it was kind of tricky because if you as a black didn't leave Oregon, you could be forced to work. Now, what is that? Is that slavery or isn't it slavery? I'm pretty sure that's slavery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like slavery. <laughs> but but the excuse that's given by the um, by the rule makers of the day was that they weren't racist. They said they were more um, they wanted to avoid the conflict that was stirring up in the south between the north and the south and the Civil War was pending all this time. And there was a lot of conflict and a lot of, a lot of problems were brewing between the North and the South. And a, and a lot of settlers wanted to leave that political turmoil to escape from it. And so they thought, well, if we go to a place that is only one race, the white race, then we won't have any problems. We'll, we'll avoid conflict. So, um, that is part of the reasoning uh, for this. So, so book three, which I have yet to write, I'm, I'm just finishing the second part of this trilogy. Um, Libertas is the first book. I'm, I'm close to finishing Firmitas, which is the second book, Endurance. And the third book will be released um, shortly thereafter. So um, it is a fascinating history. It really is. This is incredible. Uh, how exciting. I mean, this, it, and your passion for it is what's so uh, infectious. So thank you very much for sharing all that. Uh, what is the most eye-opening piece of history that you uncovered doing the research for this project? Uh, I, I really think it's um, the sense of endurance. I had no idea that people could endure such um, such cruelty from the terrain. Um, I know that people have great capacity to endure challenges and hardship, but they were so driven, they were so driven that when they finally landed to the places they were going, endurance was all they had left. 
whatever kind of people they were when they started, they were different when they got to where they were going. All that, all the things that one thinks of as your emotional life and your spiritual life is all gutted. It's gone. All they had left was a sense of endurance. And it took a bit of their humanity away, but gave them um, gave them a fortitude that um, that I think is at one point it's alarming how much they had to let go of. Uh, but at the other point, there was so much future built into it because these people were unstoppable. And so I, I think of that as part of the American spine. Uh, that there is a part of us that is, you know, sometimes we do sacrifice our humanity to get where we want to go. But I think it's also important to find it again and merge it with that spine. Beautifully put. Absolutely. Could not agree more. That's an incredible observation. Uh, so I am curious before I let you go, uh, where do you find yourself spiritually now? I'm a panpsychist. Awesome. Um, I was a pantheist, but I had problems with the word theist. Uh, I, I, uh, God, I would rather believe that there is a consciousness to all things and that all things have all things have consciousness right down to the quantum world, um, the quantum atoms, uh, the quantum particles, everything uh, in in the new new studies today uh, find that uh, even the smallest particle of matter seems to have a consciousness. It knows what to do. It knows who to associate with. It knows how to build something. Um, it knows how to associate with other things of its kind to make a, a glass bowl or a tree or a planet or a moon. They all seem to know what their duties are. And there is a sense that all things have consciousness and we are connected to a giant consciousness or a consciousness of mind. And this is not a new idea. We are using, we have theoretical physicists now who've, who have been able to play with new technology and new tools. But this is an old idea, as old as the ancients. And it's just now coming back. I mean, Aristotle talk about, talked about this idea of, um, of co uh, eternal consciousness uh, and it really does fit well with me that my heart beats with the heartbeat of everything out there, including the orbits of of the of the moon and the stars. And uh, I just would hope that one day I would know where my own consciousness goes uh, when this body goes away and I become part of the dust of the big bang again. But I, I would love to um, think that part of this consciousness is absorbed somehow and is given growth to some expansive idea of who and what we are. So there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of mystery. I have no answers for. I just know that I belong and I am connected. Beautiful. God, you're incredible. I've got to introduce you to a good friend of mine named Blair McDaniel. She runs the Informal Mystic on Instagram. I'll, I'll connect you to. Um, she is someone who was in the church for like 30 years, then came out and now helps folks integrate uh, with religious trauma. She even facilitates weddings and funerals uh, for folks that need that, that don't have a place to go, right? That are recently uh, out of that. She's in, truly remarkable, like yourself. So I think you guys have a lot to talk about, you too. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I will probably turn you loose here. I just wanted to ask you one more question so sure um what do when when you do uh you know poof out into dust there and return to the big bang uh what do you want people to remember you for oh boy uh i don't i don't i've not thought about it i i honestly haven't i haven't thought of my epitaph i'm i'm too busy living it you know, I, I love this answer because I have said the exact same thing. Now, you and I are the only two people on the planet that I've heard of that have said, I don't know, because I'm not thinking of that yet. 
I don't know. That's beautiful, and that uh, rings a lot of bells for me, Danuta. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Brandon. It was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're welcome back anytime. So come hang out anytime. Thank you so much. Take care. Now, that's a remarkable story. Uh, Danuta Pfeiffer, everybody. All the ways to find her, of course, will be located down in the show notes. A tremendous author. Uh, so definitely check out her book, Libertas. Her second one should be coming out soon. And then a third one on the way. So um, absolutely fascinating. What, just what a story. I, I'm just still blown away by it. So there you go. Uh, all the ways to find her, of course, guys, linked in the show notes. So check her out for sure. Uh, the music that you're listening to right now, good buddy Vinny the Saint. He's got new stuff. He's linked in the show notes. Check him out. And if you would like to expand your experience with us here on the show, you can do so at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where links to all socials, premium content, merchandise, all the good stuff is there. So run out into this week this week, guys, and y'all pick up a piece of litter, of course, uh, by somebody in line around you or near you, a coffee or a meal, something small, but it makes a big ripple in the collective, and that's what we're here to do. Um, Also, uh, you know, just be nice to everybody that you come across. Hold doors open, smile, be nice to every lizard person, animal, entity, anybody that you come across, guys. That's what that means. All of it. Um, Go also and get out of the left-hand lane. And then above all and anything else, uh, go out in this beautiful place, whatever this thing is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.